When it comes to places to innovate in healthcare, one could argue that Australia is like the Goldilocks of locations to get started. It's not too big, it's not too small. How great is it when we see innovations from within Australia help more Australians achieve better patient outcomes or improve something in the healthcare system? But after a bit of local success, usually the question is then, well, what about the rest of the world? Can you take some success that you've had here and move it into the US or other parts of Asia Pacific? How do you actually do that? Do you just do what you did here, but over there? Or do you totally revamp your thing and fit it into a new environment? Well, today on the show, I'm talking with Sabine Sheikh from Crescent Strategy Consulting about her jam, which is about going global. In this episode, we're going to talk about how to scale your thing to other countries, how to streamline your strategy, and some common pitfalls to avoid when entering other markets. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Sabine Sheikh. She's an international healthcare business executive with nearly 20 years of experience in corporates and startups across the US, Australia and Asia Pacific. She works with governments, medical device corporates, venture capital and private equity funds and global startups on new healthcare innovations and how to get them to market. Hey, Sabine, how are you going? I'm doing really well, Pete. How are you doing today? I am fantastic. Thank you. And it's great to have you on the show. So I appreciate you making the time. And it's going to be fun talking about going global and taking a strategy and scaling it out and and doing all of those exciting things. But firstly, before we get stuck into that, I'm keen to learn a little bit more about you. Please tell us about yourself, Sabine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really excited. I get geeked out when it comes to talking about innovation and commercialization strategies. So I love this uh, specific topic that we're um, going down on. Uh, a bit about my background, I've been in healthcare for almost 20 years, originally from the US, and I've had experiences with a few different large multinationals, always bringing new products and technologies to the market. I then transitioned over to Australia about eight years ago and fell in love with Australia, still with a corporate, working with a national team and revamping the strategies and foundations for a company. And during that time, I got more involved with innovation and really realized that there are a number of different companies out of Australia and Asia Pacific at a broader level that are getting missed for acquisition opportunities just because of lack of funding and mentorship. And so I really got excited about getting more involved with innovation, started mentoring different startups and branched out with, into my consultancy a few years ago to work with state and federal governments, the med tech corporates, as we mentioned, some private equity and venture capital funds, as well as startups that are from all around the world. And they're looking to go all around the world. So that's mm. a little bit about my background. Love it. No, excellent. And so, you know, Crescent Strategy Consulting, that's what you're doing now. So tell us a bit more about the clients that you're working with and the type of stuff that you're advising on. Absolutely. So it depends on who the client is. So if I'm working with startups, it's generally class one to class three startups, mostly regulated, but not all of them are regulated. And it's a mixture between hardware and software or just purely software as well. And so when I do the work for them, it could be anywhere as early as, I mean, early stage where investors or VC funds are looking to put investment into it. So I'm doing due diligence for them. It could be a little bit later stage as well. So prior to commercial 
launch where I'm helping build out commercial strategies for these companies. And that looks like not just go to market, but global expansion strategies, what the product market fit looks like, and what would be the most impactful distribution model for that particular product. And then I also do some sudden executive work as well. And this goes back to either startups or to venture capital funds. And with them, it's a more hands-on approach where I sit in as an executive for a period of time. Usually it's about six months on average, and I'm really involved in more of the day-to-day aspects of building out the strategies and working with the team and coming in as a consultant, but really helping scale them into those next phases. Must be really interesting working with companies of different sizes, like that's always a different vehicle to jump in each time. But I'm particularly interested in the mix, like you say, of hardware and software devices and then the digital world. And over the past couple of years, those two worlds, which were quite kind of different fields to operate in and in the middle, they shall not meet. It's very much a a kind of combination of both. Are you seeing that as well in your work? Absolutely. So most of the medical device corporates, um, just by history, are device manufacturers. So they have hardware products and a lot of their go-to-markets are related to hardware. A few years ago, I think at the granular level, I started to notice a shift from that and becoming more software oriented where there's data involved. And not only does that software data help accelerate maybe a product that's in the market, but maybe offers better insights or outcomes to the clinicians or hospitals or patients. And so a few years ago, one of the things that I had started really advocating for is looking into the software opportunities and how do we combine that with corporates. But most of the medical device corporates don't have the expertise within their own headcount. Most of those corporates don't have that uh, software expertise within their skill set or toolkit, if you will. And so a lot of them are now looking externally to build and buy or partner. And we're really seeing that trend come through now in the last couple of years more aggressively where there's a lot of these software companies that are just pure software, so SaaS or software as a medical device, SAMD, and that's a regulated aspect. And they're really accelerating the growth opportunities, adjacencies for the corporates, as well as the outreach and impact into the patient population. Interesting. And so, you know, you've got a bit of a you know, unique perspective as well, coming from outside of Australia and other markets and then coming and working within Australia. And I imagine a lot of those organizations would be interested in how they take what they're doing here, but going more broadly as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always interesting or it's a value add to have the U.S. insights and how the U.S. economy works because it is the biggest market for most device companies or most medical opportunities. And we'll get into that a little bit later of like where some of these other big markets are going to be emerging in the future. But having that understanding of it's the U.S. system, the players, the referral networks, for example, and just how it works and so different to how things work in Australia really helps shape some of those strategies of people or startups going from even the European countries or out of Asia Pacific into the US market. And so if I was, you know, the founder of an organization or working within an organization founded in Australia and looking outside of our shores to then expand more globally, what are the kind of things that you talk about with your clients about potentially considering that? Mm, There's so many different things. So Well, for example, first and foremost, making sure that their organizations are set up correctly for global and international expansion. And that's one of the biggest things that tend to be missed, not having the right organizational setup to be able to sell into the U.S. market. And then once you are in the U.S. market, not having certain licenses or titles set up correctly as well for importing, if it's a hardware product, so importing 
product as well as and selling within the different states. So that tends to be something that I tell people to keep in mind because that entire process can sometimes take anywhere from six to 12 months alone. And so I think that's one key thing. Um, another key thing is that the product market fit might be completely different for the U.S. versus Australia. So for example, there might be an opportunity, whether it's with um, hardware, so medical device or software that's combined with hardware or software that's going into capturing some type of data or information from the patient and whoever the purchaser is, whether it's a clinician or patient or hospital system or even insurance provider. A lot of times in the US, they're looking for something different. The workflows are quite different. And so that being said, you've got to tailor your product for a US entry to suit the market needs and what the buyers are looking for in that market there. So I think that part would be related to product fit, if you will, and making sure that that's understood correctly, as well as then the next part is then the workflow. And you know if there are differences in the workflow, how do you fit into the workflow opportunity? And reimbursement is a key thing when it comes to the US market. Not all of the products need that per se, but most of them do. So really understanding what that pathway looks like and then what model you would fit into from a reimbursement perspective, and as well as what the health economics and reimbursement side of things are. So when I say health economics, it's to really understand like what your value drivers are for the US market and then what the value propositions are for each of the stakeholders. I think about my own experiences from demonstrating product market fit here in Australia with solutions that cross both software and hardware and demonstrating within a total addressable market here in Australia, this is the potential. And then you look to the US and the size of a pilot site is about the size of the total addressable market here in Australia. You know, like the size is astronomical compared to the year, but then through that process of expansion out and then combined with all the other different factors, like you say, the product market fit here in Australia could be meaningless when it comes to product market fit in other parts of the world. So really trying to understand where you're moving into, it sounds like it's it's critical. Yeah, it absolutely is. But to be fair, there are great benefits of trialing your product in Australia. Whether or not it might be the exact product that you bring to the US market, for example, or the European market, so I'll use that as a Western market opportunity. Australia is a great beachhead market. It's low risk. You know, it's got a Western population, which aligns with the US market and the European market. And so if you're trying to prove something out for those populations, this is a market that could do that. You know, because of how small the adjustable market is here, if you screw up, it's a small risk, right? So some corporates here are a little bit more willing to trial something at a smaller scale here and where you can really then take that feedback to innovate and make the product right for the US market. Because in the U.S. market, once you launch, you launch. And a lot of the companies or corporates are a bit more hesitant to, you know, do some type of acquisition or, you know, distribution partnership unless they know for sure that you've got a product that is commercially viable and ready for them to scale. And if you were thinking about expanding into other parts of the world and you don't have an in-depth knowledge of all of that. You know, to have an in-depth understanding of what's happening in the US is very different to having an in-depth understanding of Asia Pacific. So to have, you know, one strategy to break into the US and one strategy to go into Asia Pacific, that's overwhelming and difficult to think about when you're founding a product from the get-go that you're then also keeping in mind the rest of the world. How do you go about, you know, consolidating some of this thinking so you don't get bogged down in the conceptualization even before it gets off the ground? That's a great question. I see this is one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of new startups are making, 
where they're trying to go for a really broad global market entry and they are trying to identify the US market, Europe, Canada, India, Latin America, and everything in between as the market opportunity. But the reality is you've got the developed markets, which would be the US, um, Europe, for example, Australia's developed markets, Japan. And you've got developing markets, which would be most of Asia Pacific, Latin America, for example. And I'll just use those as the core focus points. The strategies are quite different for a number of different reasons. The needs are different. The price points are different. And so if you're looking to go into Asia Pacific or developing markets, then you really need to understand what are the needs for those markets and what's the right price point for that. So something that would work for developed markets won't necessarily work for the developing markets, but there are ways to get that same product into those markets. It's just with fewer bells and whistles. I can touch on that a little bit more as we get deeper into this conversation. There's an idea of frugal innovation or even reverse innovation. And sometimes that is something that's more relevant to the developing markets that then later on becomes relevant to the developed markets. So I guess back to your question, product market fit tends to be quite different for the developing markets, so Asia Pacific, Latin America, as an example, price points are considerably different as well. But that being said, we also know that there is a huge rise in the middle class, especially like in India, for example, and China. And that being said, the rise in the middle class, there's more money that's going to be coming up in the next few years for people to spend on healthcare. And they're going to want better, more personalized products and experiences than what they've been used to in the past. So it does open up an opportunity for a big market. So everyone always thinks about going to the US market as like the big opportunity, but I would say not to discount India or China as another big market opportunity, but then focus on developing markets as that strategy. So would I be right in saying having in mind a strategy for both developed and developing, or at least something in mind in terms of how you would approach those markets is probably the best way to start in terms of building out that global strategy? Well, actually, so it's good to have it on the radar if it makes sense for your product. And so again, it depends on what the specific product is, what it's used for. You know, Is it something that's an implant, for example, that's going to be at an outrageous price that's not affordable to the developing markets? Or is it even a software as a medical device or a SaaS opportunity that might maybe, again, the price point is something that's too high. So it's good to identify if you want to go into both markets, developed and developing, understand what that pathway looks like generally bandwidth is limited. So internal resources are what the limitations are, right? And so you really have to prioritize if you're going to the developed markets, prioritize what order that goes into. Usually it's US and C mark, and then it goes into like Japan or Australia. If you're going to the developing markets, again, prioritize what that looks like. Usually, again, it goes into either China or India, and then you branch out from there, depending on population and what the opportunities are. So if you are looking at going to both, Another thing to keep in mind are any amendments that need to be made to the product. So if you're looking to go into India, you might need to take off some bells and whistles from the product, reduce the price point, and then you would have version X, for example, that would be the developing market. Makes a lot of sense. I want to go back to this point that you touched on before around reverse innovation and frugal innovation. Can you explain explain those a little bit more? Absolutely. Frugal innovation is when a market takes the idea of innovation and reduces the bells and whistles. So takes what they need in the market or what is already available in the market and then takes it down to 50% of the core capacity or capabilities of that product, but it's developed at a fraction of the cost. So generally it's developed at 15% of the cost. 
And because they're developing at such a reduced cost and having the core functionality that's absolutely needed for those markets, they're able to then get access to those healthcare technologies for the market, but at a price point that works for them. Uh, So a good example of this is an ultrasound machine that GE had come out with. So generally ultrasound machines in the past were, you know, upwards of $100,000, $200,000, which didn't suit the developing markets or India specifically. And what was done was engineers from India looked at the ultrasound machine, found a way to reduce the cost down to 15%, made it a portable machine. So there was accessibility to other hospitals and rural hospitals that they would need it. So it wasn't stuck at one hospital. And then they took the features or the functionality of the big $100,000, $200,000 machine and took it down to 50% of what are the absolutely needed features for that market. And so now they've got a product that gives them the core features that's mobile, so suitable for the market and at a fraction of the cost. So now that would be considered frugal innovation. They were able to access the Indian market, expand out to different hospital systems, but that also ended up creating an opportunity in the Western markets, ironically. And so that's where the idea of reverse innovation comes into play, where now you've got this handheld ultrasound device that's got core functionality and at a reduced cost to make, it opened up new markets in the US. So for example, in ambulances or in the ER departments, where clinicians wanted to like do a quick ultrasound of a patient that would be coming into the hospital, but they didn't have time to schedule something that was going to require the larger machine. And so this opened up a whole new market in the US and Europe. Fascinating. I love the 50% reduction in features and reduced down to 15% of the cost. I think that's a neat kind of you know, definition of that. And I can see how those two things tie together. So that makes a lot of sense. Thinking then about, you know, from your experiences and those that have streamlined their strategies and have identified markets to enter into, what are some of the mistakes, the pitfalls that companies make? What did you avoid when you're trying to enter various markets? Every market's so different. And even when you're working with, let's just say, developed markets. So even when you're working into the US market and you are trying to get traction to the US market, it's obviously different than what the Australian market's like. Now you've got traction to the US market and you're looking as a next step to, let's say, go to Europe. Even though it's a Western market, the price point is similar. The go-to-market strategies are quite different. You know, Each of the countries have a slightly different adoption and system that they're following. So now you're having to revamp your execution side of the go-to-market, even in Western markets. So I think that's one of the things that people don't realize um, ahead of time. They assume that one go-to-market can apply to all markets, even if it's developed, but that's really not the case. So I see that people get slowed down there. Another area that people get slowed down are if they haven't actually identified the right levers and value propositions. And so you can go to market and try to get going on the execution, get the traction and really start driving sales. And you build out an entire robust team. For example, I've seen this happen before too. You know, robust teams are built out in the US market as well as European market, but the value proposition wasn't clearly identified. And so now the companies are burning through cash. You know, they're in the market, they're spinning their wheels, they've got feet on the ground and you know, not a clear understanding of what that value proposition was. So I guess that goes back to making sure when people are doing or companies are doing product market fit and customer interviews to really make sure to get all the different geographies involved in that and not skip any steps in that. And so then looking ahead to the future then, Sabine, thinking about innovative companies in healthcare, how can they best position themselves to get ready for 2022 and beyond? 
It's mm, a great question. I think one of the trends that I'm seeing that's quite impactful within healthcare is the ownership of your own data. And a lot of patients or consumers are looking to have ownership of their data, but also be able to make their own decisions. So have all of that information at their fingertips. And so I see that in the future, personalized medicine, essentially, or personalized approach to healthcare and self-driven approaches are going to become more common. And I think that if innovators could align with that and doing that with compliance, that I think it could be a strong value add for how corporates with the medical device side of things could really partner and then scale and have an impactful trajectory in the market. No, and I think you're right. Like we spend so much time as innovators or creating technology solutions, rightfully focused on the clinicians, the workflow, the how it's received in that sense. And it's very easy to forget from a patient's perspective, or it's the afterthought, it's the patient portal that gets chucked on at the end, or it's only after extensive feedback. So creating with patient in mind from the outset, whilst not foregoing the needs of clinicians and workflow is probably a, a good healthy balance there. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. So thank you, Sabine. Look, I appreciate you making the time. We'll put some notes in the show notes of this episode for people who can check out more about what you do and get in touch if they want to. We're really looking forward to catching up again in the future. Thank you so much. Sounds good. Thank you for having me on, Peter. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you around. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen. Listener.